welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community Eastside Gathering. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Heidi, we're good. We'll use this. I like this, actually. All right. Um, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you today. Uh, just uh, just being able to get up and be amongst the people of God and, and worship in community and hear the word and connect with people uh, uh, to encourage, strengthen, uh, and to connect as we prepare our hearts and mind to be faithful witnesses for you this coming week. I pray that you would open up the scriptures today, that they would come alive, and that we would be able to see that Jesus is the true bread, and that he's the one that gives us ears and eyes to hear and see the kingdom of God breaking into our lives and into our communities and into the mission he's called us into. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, we've been walking through the book of Mark, and uh, I enjoyed the series. I, 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 When I'm not here, I get to, I've been on the road all July, just finished my last and final college viewing tournament in Maryland. Uh, I was in Frederick, Maryland, far from D.C., in a remote place. Uh, and, and our girls, it's just amazing. This is a big class for them. They're 2019. And uh, next year, they will be done and on their way to college. And there's six kids, which makes this very exciting, six kids that have full-ride offers to colleges, first in their families to go to college, three of which first to graduate from high school, um, and one has an offer from Brown University. I'm like, girl, take it. She's, she's like, I want to do all, they all get five trips. So one kid's going to Hawaii, Seton Hall, Loyola Marymount, University of Denver, and San Jose State. Uh, and I can just go on and on and on. And it's made my work really hard because this week I was supposed to wind down because I don't get going until November. And all I've been doing is fielding phone calls from college coaches this whole week interested in these kids. And so there is water in the desert. Uh, you know, when I got into this, there was a lot for young black boys in terms of sports uh, and opportunity. But for young black and brown girls, there really wasn't a lot of opportunity. And so I wanted to change that and create a pathway for that to happen. And that pathway is happening. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I'm just sad that this is the final year and they're getting ready. It was kind of sad. This, this is it for them. So, But I'm thankful for Eastside to release me in some part to be a part of these kids' story because their lives, their families, their worlds will be changed forever. Amen? With that being said, we're in the book of Mark, and this is great um, because we have Jesus again preaching or sharing or teaching to a large crowd. And if you wanted to give this a sermon title, I think... The appropriate title is, is that Jesus gives bread to eat and he gives ears to hear. Jesus gives bread to eat and ears to hear. 
And we see this here in verse 1 and 2. It says, during those days, another crowd is gathered. Jesus is the biggest gatherer of crowds. He's the biggest scatterer of crowds. But he's popular. Uh, he's doing all kind of incredible miracles. The blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, the lame are walking. The gospel is being proclaimed. And everywhere he goes, he's a rock star. So since they had not, so, so he gathers the crowd and it says they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples to him and he says, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And so some preliminary points is the fact that we have a Jesus that is compassionate. A Jesus that incarnationally enters into their story. This is the first time it says that Jesus declares, I, um, they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I have compassion on these people. And this is the only time where Jesus literally says in the gospel that he has compassion. He felt compassion. He was moved by compassion. But this is in the singular person, which means Jesus takes up their need, takes up their pain, and he steps into it. The word compassion means to suffer with. And so here's Jesus, our Savior, willing to enter into our story, willing to enter into their story, into their need, not just speak to it, not just preach to it, not just have compassion for it, but he enters into it. The other piece of it is, is that it says that for three days, they had nothing to eat. They followed Jesus out into this remote place, this desert. Now, I don't know about you, but back then, uh, there were no gas stations. There were no fast food restaurants. There were no convenience stores. For them to go with Jesus is pretty remarkable. It's essentially saying that however great their physical need is, their spiritual need was greater. Interesting, I just in between my Chicago trip and my Maryland trip, I get this phone call from a guy who isn't here. Uh, but he came here one time, Jewish guy, didn't know Jesus, came here on, on uh, Easter Sunday, heard me preach, gave his life to Jesus, took communion, and never returned. Until he found me on Facebook, he hits me and says, I want to connect with you. I came to your Easter service, and I'm in a crisis. So I hit him back, and I said, let's get together tomorrow. I said, here's my address. He comes over to my office in a very snazzy Mercedes Benz, <laughs> picks me up, takes me to his office. Now, this is pretty cool because I've been around kids in North and Northeast Portland. It's nice to be in a nice Mercedes Benz every so often. <laughs> so he picks me up in his real snazzy Mercedes Benz, says, can I take you to my office? That's the easiest place for us to talk. He takes me to his office. He takes me to his company. He says, this company I've been building for 11 years is worth a half a billion dollars. I'm like, wow, half a billion dollars. That's pretty serious. That's big money. So he takes me into his office and then he breaks down, starts bawling. He says, the reason I wanted to talk to you is that I just gave my life to Jesus. I'm in a men's group here in the city. I'm a, I'm, I grew up in the synagogue and, and uh, my wife just told me she's leaving me. And when you preached on Easter Sunday, a friend brought me and it spoke to me. And it was at that moment that I accepted Jesus for the first time. And it says, I love the way you communicate. And so we got, 
got to talking about his marriage. And as he began to go into his marriage, I started to see this pattern, right? We did three different sessions over a week's time. I met him on a Monday, on a Wednesday, then on a Friday. And I started to hear this pattern that you typically hear in a marriage when the marriage goes awry because two people refuse to reconcile. And the pattern is that if you only hear one side of the story, it's typically that person paints themselves as the hero and their spouse as the villain. And so as I would sit there for two hours at a time, and literally I would only chime in for about 10 minutes, I would just let him pour out his soul. And then he started talking about his kids and being estranged from him, not knowing what to do with his kids, not knowing what to do with his wife. And then he says, Eric, I've done everything. As he puts himself as the hero of the story, he says, I've done everything. I don't know what else to do. And I said, you know what? I got one more assignment for you, one more thing for you to do. And he goes, what? As he sat on the edge of his seat, hoping that I would give him the magic bullet. I said, there's one more thing you need to do. And he said, what? I said, do you love Jesus? He said, yeah. Do you believe the gospel? Yes. Have you put your life and heart into his hand? Yeah. He said, there's one more thing you're going to have to do. And he said, what is it? And I said, nothing. Absolutely nothing. I said, you can't fix this, man. You're going to have to put this in God's hand and believe that he is enough. You got a half a billion dollar company. You pick me up in a Mercedes Benz. You fix problems. And you're successful doing it. You're not going to be successful doing this. You're going to have to put this in God's hand and declare in your own life and in your own heart that he is enough. Now, can you imagine the incredible risk these people were under? They go out into a desert not knowing if they would eat by the time they return. Do you understand how satisfying Jesus is? And I truly believe in our life, including my own, that we don't believe he's enough. We've got all kind of idols and things that we put into our life to kind of patch up our spirituality because we don't believe him. We're not satisfied being single. We don't believe that God can do a work in our marriage. We're frustrated with our kids and we've quit. We've let go of a dead-end job instead of realizing and trying to understand what God can teach us in it. We don't believe Jesus is enough, especially here in America, because we don't have to. So these cats is like three days without food. Do you understand? Jesus understands the dilemma. He even stops the teaching and says, we got to do something about this because if I send them home, they're going to faint. Can you imagine how satisfying Jesus is? Can you imagine the faith declaration part of this crowd was making, determining that Jesus was enough? But not only is Jesus enough, he is also enough in remote places. Look with me. It says in verse 3, if I send them home hungry, Jesus is asking the question. He says they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where is this remote place? But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? And how many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. And they replied, seven. Now, remember when I started this book, actually, this book is about eating, 
Israel and empire. Right? Like when Mark starts the book, he starts the book by declaring in the beginning the son of God. He is talking about creation. I don't have time. Go to chapter, go to Mark 1, my first sermon. You'll understand what I'm talking about. He is talking about creation. Right? But he's also talking about Israel. And you see all this imagery of not only this present Israel, but he's talking also about this Old Testament Israel. And you see all this reference to the Old Testament. So when Jesus says, if I send them home hungry and they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance, and his disciples says, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? They're in a desolate place. There's nothing to eat. They say to themselves, we're going to die because we... There's no convenience store. There's no restaurant. There's no fast food place for us to eat. Where have you heard that language if you've been in Christianity long enough? That's the Old Testament. That's God taking the children of Israel out of Egypt toward the promised land in the wilderness, and they're complaining about having not enough to eat. Now, the interesting thing about this is, is that the trip from Egypt to the promised land should have taken three days, but how long does it take? Forty years! A 40-year journey should have only taken three days. Why? Because they complained and they did not trust God in faith. Do you understand in the remote places of your life, God is enough? In fact, in remote places... In the Greek, that word means wilderness. Do you understand that God, that's where the real good eating is? That's where the real food is? When you're going through a tough marriage, if you can handle that tough marriage and get to the other side, don't you understand that's what makes the marriage deeper? It creates far more substance. Don't you understand when you are resolved in your singleness, that's where the real food is? To realize that whatever you lose, Jesus makes up in his presence in your life when you trust him. We live in a culture where we try to keep things safe and sanitized. We don't want pain. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want struggle. And it is in struggle. It is in conflict. It is in those types of moments that the good eating happens. Now, I don't know about you, but I can tell you about my own life. There are about six, seven people, when I think back, that had a tremendous impact in my life, aside from my wife, my kids, and obviously Jesus. And those six, seven people that had an impact in my life weren't the people that patted me on the back and told me all the good stuff that I needed to hear. It is usually the six or seven people that I can think, I can name, and their names roll off my tongue, that gave me the real, that spoke into my life, that didn't let me do hard things, that got in the trenches and challenged me, that didn't let me buy into just status quo wisdom, but was willing to, to push me way beyond I willing to push myself. The good food for us in remote places is where Jesus shows up the best. 
So Jesus is enough in remote places, but he's also enough in all places. Look with me here in verse 6 through 10. It says this, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a fish. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them. And he also told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. And afterwards, the disciples picked up the seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. And after he had sent them away, he got into the boat with the disciples, and he went to the region of, the, of Dalmanutha, something like that. Do you see what's happening here? The disciples should have already known that Jesus is enough. Remember, two chapters earlier, Matthew chapter 6, is almost virtually the same story. Jesus feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And he's in a Jewish territory. Now, most historians and, church and, and, and scholars say that this signifies the 5,000 people fed the five loaves that Jesus used and the two fish. If you tally that up, that tallies up to the 12, signifies the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus is in a Jewish place. And then here he does this miracle literally a year later. And he's in a Gentile place and he's feeding 4,000 with seven loaves and a few fish. And most scholars would say that 4,000 represents uh, the four corners of the earth. And the seven represents uh, the pagan nations that inhabited Canaan before Israel entered into the promised land and and. and Conversely, they're in a Gentile space. So here's Jesus performing a miracle within 12 months of each other, one in a Jewish place and the other in a Gentile place, and it's around this issue of Jesus feeding the needy, the hungry, the famished. And the point is, is that Jesus and the gospel goes out, and it is satisfying for all people. Not just Jewish people, not just Gentile people, but for all people. This is the good news of the gospel. Do you hear me this morning? Are you hot? Are we good? Now notice who struggles with this. Verse 10. He got into the boat with the disciples and he went to the region of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha is a Jewish area. How do we know this? Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came. <laughs> and they began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and he said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Now, I, I hear Jesus, but then I don't hear Jesus. It seems like it would make sense that he'd just give them one last sign and then they'd believe. They'd get it. But they don't. Jesus didn't even give them a sign, rebukes them. Now, here's what's interesting. Why doesn't Jesus give them a sign? In the commentary Binding the Strong Man, Chad Myers 
says this about this not giving them a sign from heaven. He says, the powerful practice of Jesus has not invoked heaven. The fact enables us to read Jesus' refusal. You have signs enough in my practice here on earth, signs, signs which even the crowd has often read. Read these signs, therefore. Be readers, simiologists of my narrative. There will be no more signs from heaven because there are signs on earth. Do you hear what he's saying? Jesus wouldn't give him a sign from heaven because he just showed him a sign from earth. The fact that he had fed 4,000 and they ate and were satisfied. That was the sign that the Pharisees missed. Now, I don't know what kind of church experience you have ever been a part of, but I've been a part of all kinds of, I'm a Baptist, Pentecostal, methodologist, a Magawite, right? And I've been in a lot of different Christian streams. I've been in the Pentecostal Charismatics and the way you minister and do the gospel work in the culture and see the kingdom of God break in is through signs and wonders and healings and all that stuff. Signs from heaven. And I've been in some pretty mainline churches and, 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 and a lot of that work is about feeding the needy and the poor and dispossessed and fighting systems and being a social justice warrior. And the beautiful piece of the gospel is, is that it knows how to weave both those things together. Jesus is not anti-signs from heaven. You read the book of Acts. They were always performing miracles to validate not only their apostleship, but the authority of the gospel. So Jesus is not against signs from heaven, but he's also about works on earth, signs from earth, good people, godly people, people that are living a mission like you and I that are out there in the trenches fighting systems, confronting racism, uh, serving the poor and dispossessed and learning from them and sitting at their feet. The beautiful piece of the gospel is, is that there are signs from heaven and there are signs from earth and only the gospel knows how to reconcile those two things. Verse 14 through 21. Let's continue. So the disciples had forgotten to bring the bread. Except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Jesus says, be careful. He warns them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Verse 16. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Now, which is it? Verse 14 says, they had one loaf. Here it says, we have no bread. Which is it? I read a few commentaries. Some say they had one loaf. Some say they didn't have a loaf. But what's the point? The point is this. Verse 17, aware of this discussion, Jesus asked him, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see and understand? Here's Jesus' point. He's doubling down. Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears 
but failed to hear. And don't you remember? Remember what? Remember two chapters ago, a year ago, prior to this miracle, Jesus had already done a miracle. And the same God that did that miracle is more than able to do this miracle. How easy it is for us to get spiritual amnesia. He said, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketful of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand what I'm doing? On the one hand, what Jesus is saying is, is that, that all this bread story and me feeding people, the 7,000 and the uh, the 5,000 and the 4,000 and in the Jewish area and in the Gentile area. Don't you understand? I'm on this boat. They don't know if there's a loaf or not. But at the end of the day, there's this notion about the one loaf. And what Jesus is saying is, don't you understand? Don't you get it? That Jesus's miracles that he does is not to grandstand. He does it to point to who he is. And the fact that the disciples do not even get that at the end of the day, Jesus is the one loaf. And not only is Jesus the one loaf, but he goes into these two stories, the feeding of the 5,000, which is this Jewish area, and the feeding of this 4,000, which is this Gentile area. And he, who is the one loaf, is taking two people that he both fed and making them into one loaf. And that's why Jesus said, watch out for the Pharisees and Herod. Because the one thing that stands in the way of two people groups becoming one loaf is religion and politics. <laughs> the Pharisees didn't want to buy into Jesus' social project of the one loaf based on their social, moral, and racial conviction. And yet, on the other hand, the Herodians oppose this kind of one-loaf integration based on cultural imperialism and collaboration with Rome. Don't you understand that Jesus came and died and resurrected not only to redeem us, but to reconcile us and bring us into this one-loaf? That is Jesus' kingdom social experiment. And this is what he has called all of us into. Don't you understand all this? Look, this is the third time Jesus is crossing the sea. And it's not, no, let me tell you, us Protestant evangelicals, we have taken these passages of Jesus crossing the sea and, and the winds and the waves, wrong contrary and stuff like that. And we turn it into these nice little pithy stories about how to overcome trials in our life and problems in our life and circumstances in our life. All the sea crossing between Jew and Gentile is not about that. It is about Jesus' mission. It is about Jesus' social project. It is about him being the ultimate loaf, turning two people into one loaf. Amen? But what's the problem? I'll tell you what the problem is. We're blind. That's why Jesus goes into the story of blind Bartimaeus, and it is only in Jesus 
I ain't got time to read all of it. It is the story of blind Bartimaeus and the story of Peter's confession that we get eyes to see. In fact, the gospel has to be worked over our house, over our heart and our lives over and over again. Because even when Jesus lays hands on blind Bartimaeus, the first time he looks out, what does he see? People like trees. And Jesus has to do it again. You understand what I'm saying? All of us are blind to this one loaf. All of us are blind to this kind of reality. All of us are blind to this kind of social project. We don't see. It takes time, prayer, intervention, miracle, healing for us to overcome on the one hand our bitterness and our pain of our historic plight. And for some of you, it takes a long time to overcome your blindness of your own power and privilege. To understand that we both need hands laid on us. That's why the body comes together to unblind us. To break the, 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 the caste and racial systems of our society that prevent us from living into Jesus' social pro, pro, uh, project. You with me? I'm with myself this morning. Anyway. I'm almost done. How do we do this? How do, recognize that we're blind. Recognize that we are not going to see Jesus and what he's doing unless God reveals it. And realize that this is not a destination, it's a journey, it is a process. This doesn't happen overnight. This work in this community looks like blind Bartimaeus when he first opened his eyes. Right now, I see trees. I don't get it all. It kind of makes sense, but it don't make sense. I kind of get it, but I don't get it. That's the beauty of the gospel. It invites you into this kind of radical transformation. I love Brother Bob Williford, lived in Canby, still owns property in Canby, but felt God called him to Eastside and moved his whole family right around the corner from here to live in Mission. And I am certain every time we meet at Jet Black Coffee and have conversations around race and justice and stuff like that, I know he looks at these issues and they look like trees. Trying to get somebody else's perspective, right? Like, like Doug Schroeder back in college, my first white roommate from Goldsboro, not Goldsboro, but Golds Beach, Oregon. He was a part of the Republican debate team at his high school. That was my roommate in college. Good night. He was white as they got. And yet our conversations look like trees to each other. <laughs> That's how it's supposed to be when you get around people around you. What do you think?
think you're going to meet somebody different than you and get it right off the bat? And if you don't, you're going to take your ball and back and go home? Really? That's what we're doing? Look at this. Blind Bartimaeus gets it in stages, but at least he gets it. Notice with me here in closing, verse 27 through 30. Check this out. Jesus and the disciples went out to the village and around Caesarea Philippi. And on his way, he asked them, wait, I'm sorry. No, verse 31, I mean. He then began to teach them, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, an apostle, one of his original disciples, don't get it. Like completely misses, misses the mission of Jesus. And yet blind Bartimaeus does. When we talk about an unwelcome humanity, I'm telling you, living into people different than yourself is important, not so you can minister to them. Not so you can make a project out of them, but so you can learn from them. Can I tell you, and that's not to toot my own horn, but I tell you, five years I've been in the black girl basketball side, didn't even plan it, it snuck up on me, it wasn't anything I would ever choose, but I'm telling you, my life has been changed by these women. So much so that when the Me Too movement happened, I had like Jesus compassion for it. I mean, I advocated for women. I believe women had, but I, you know, it, it, I didn't, it wasn't burning in my soul about it. And all of a sudden, Jesus puts me in this space in a marginalized community, and I would contend that black women in the black community are even more marginalized. And I had my epiphany, oh, I just need to shut up and listen and watch and observe. I don't know anything. But we all have to, like Peter, die. 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 The only way you can live into this one loaf that Jesus is creating is you got to die. And part of that dying means that everybody at the table gets to eat. So guess what that means? Everybody doesn't get worship they like. Everybody doesn't get their favorite preacher they like. Everybody doesn't just get to get into the, the home community they like. And speaking of home community, you can't always just eat the food you like. Part of the social experiment is experiment with your taste bud. <laughs> Do you hear me? 
But everybody's got to die and quit trying to tell Jesus how he's supposed to do his work. That's what Peter was doing. Look, just surrender, die. Quit trying to tell Jesus and the church and leaders and your home community and people that are listening how you just die. Man, can you imagine a community where everybody's committed to dying? When they say in their own heart, this is great, but some of this is a struggle, but that's okay. I remember Julia Barbie, I always say this. Where's Julia? She's back there. I had a church plant that bombed. That church was like 98% black in Culver City for four years. And the one white person that came from Long Beach, 40 minutes, every Sunday, faithfully, was Julia Barbie. And I'll never forget, I felt a little uncomfortable for her because she was the lone white person in a predominantly black church. I took her out to coffee and I said, how do you feel being in our community? He goes, it's a little uncomfortable, but that's okay. I'm okay with that. God is calling each one of us to part of the social experiment, turning these woes into one bread, is to be okay. You ain't supposed to feel comfortable. The king, one of the values of the kingdom of God is that we all are pushed. We're all off. But we can't live in this unless we see Jesus as the loaf. And we can't live into Jesus as the loaf unless we're working to take these loaves and making them into one loaf. And that is when you begin to see Jesus clearer. <laughs> clearer. I hang in these multicultural spaces because without them, I won't see Jesus clearer. So this morning, we got one loaf and many glasses of wine and juice. God is calling us to the table this morning to partake of our Savior who came and broke his body who was the one Savior who died in our place as that loaf to remove the veil of enmity between race and culture and gender and economics and everything to call us all into one loaf. So let's go to the communion table and ask God, Help me participate in his social experiment so that the kingdom of God can break in. In my life, my community, and the spaces God calls us into. Let's pray. Jesus, we're blind. We don't want to die.
And yet you took Jews and Gentiles and you fed them both to convey to us that the kingdom of God is not exclusive. And everybody, when you sat, sat them at the table, everyone, rich and poor, young and old, black, white, male and female, God, everybody had a space at the table and ate and were satisfied. So today, God, can we be those emissaries, those ambassadors that live into the kingdom, that live in that social experiment, that, that change our mentality to practice radical hospitality. Today, as we come to the communion table, make us new people. Transform us today. Help us to be more inclusive. Help us to, to live out Mark 8 this week and to shape our heart to what this text is trying to convey to us, each of us, in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at idceastside.com. Thanks for listening.